This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Now, if you think about the gospel of John as a whole, Jesus is performing signs all over the place. In John chapter 5, he heals the lame. In John chapter 6, he feeds thousands. Same chapter, he walks on water. In John chapter 9, he restores sight to the blind. In John chapter 11, he raises someone from the dead. This is a great advertising strategy. Each is a fantastic billboard in itself, showing a picture of the brilliance and the beauty of what God's doing in the world. So here's the question. Here's what's so odd about John chapter 2. Why start at a wedding? Why would you use your first sign or miracle? Why would you waste it on bailing out an ill-prepared teenage groom who didn't buy enough wine for his own reception? Why turn water into wine? On the surface, this doesn't make very much sense, does it? Now think about this. Why do we love weddings so much? Not just any wedding. We've all been to weddings we didn't want to attend, right? But the weddings you really wanted to be at. Maybe you're in the wedding. Maybe you know the groom or the bride, and you're ecstatic to celebrate that 24 to 36 hours with them. Think about what's, well, think of the best of the best weddings. You know all the family there. You know the friends. These are people you haven't seen since high school or college. You're around each other. You're sharing stories, and there's festivities lined up for about two straight days where you just keep seeing each other, and you get to enjoy wonderful meals together, and you get to celebrate what God's doing in that couple. It's an opportunity to say things that are awkward at other points of the year, but at that point, you get to say really mushy stuff at the rehearsal dinner, right? And you get to honor them and show videos and embarrass them, and you just have so much fun together. There's so much to celebrate. Weddings, the best of weddings, are the best of times. and are so much fun to be able to unleash and celebrate what God is doing. One of the things I like about Indian weddings is they're a little bit more like ancient Near Eastern weddings. In a wedding in the United States, you have a rehearsal that's like at 5, rehearsal dinner that's at 7, but it's usually over by 9 or 9.30. Then you might have golf that morning for some of the guys. The gals are getting ready, and you have a wedding between 12 and 6. And the reception, at best, is three hours long. In India, a wedding takes about three to five days. Okay? It's awesome. I'm not talking continuous activity. It's just like for four days, you have to take the whole week off. And all you do is go from event to event to event. And every night there's a banquet to feast at. Or it's like the whole town's invited. They rent out entire houses and coliseums. They invite everyone they know. And you eat the grandest of feasts. And you share stories. And you revel and you celebrate. And that's how weddings were in the time of Jesus. The ancient Near East. Weddings were parties. Weddings were celebrations. Weddings were the best of times. See, when you slow down and think about it, A wedding is the best place, the greatest place for the first sign of Jesus. Because it points to a greater celebration. It points to a greater celebration to enjoy and taste now to get lost into. It points to a greater celebration worthy of your life and really worthy waiting for. It points to a greater celebration that best describes our relationship with God. And it points to a greater celebration which breeds deep-rooted life and contentment and sacrificial love. So here's how we're going to get into this odd, odd but unique, amazing sign in John chapter 2. We're going to look at the meaning of signs, the significance of signs, and the implications of signs. Meaning, significance, implications. So here we go. The first point, the meaning of signs. If you were like, if we were preaching through the book of John, you'd see that chapters 1 through 11 are a series of signs. It's almost like the book of signs. 
In John uh, 2, verse 11, Jesus almost defines for us what signs are. Look at this verse with me. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The New Testament uses multiple words to denote miracles. There is dynamis, which is mighty works, which is the most common word used in the New Testament, but it's not found at all in John. Then there's tarata, which is wonders or miracles, which is found when only linked to another word for miracles, which is signs, semea, and it's always translated signs and wonders. And this combination is only found in the Gospel of John. But in this simple first miracle, he uses the simple word signs. So what are signs? Signs are a manifestation of God's glory. They're never naked powers or displays of God's power, but they point to deeper realities. They foreshadow the glory to come. They're like little pictures, little windows, signposts, breadcrumbs, billboards, glimpses of the glory to come. Now think about the fullness of the manifested glory of Jesus. That's what the second half of the Gospel of John's about. It's about his cross, where on the cross he dies for the sins of his people, and he gives us righteousness. He pardons us. He cleanses us. He gives us his very life. It refers to his resurrection, where he conquered the power of sin and death, and he reigns over the things, and he gives that righteousness and that life to us. It speaks to his exaltation, where the glorified Jesus is wandering around all over the place, just showing up and blessing his disciples, and his body is majestic and amazing and whole, except for two holes in his hands, which are part of his glory. But Jesus himself points to even a greater reality that will reshape the world, a world that will be made whole. Uh, As most of you know, I was at a church in Chapel Hill before I came here, and I planned that church. And the first couple I ever accrued to my church, I just learned two days ago, that uh, the, the gal died. She died of cancer. And she leaves behind three beautiful girls and a son with autism, and she, when, she, when she passed away, she passed away estranged from her husband. In the world to come, that's not going to happen. In the world to come, people aren't going to die. And they're not going to be estranged from those who they care about. And little boys aren't going to grow up with autism. But they're going to grow up, all of us, whole, perfect, congruent, full of glory and majesty where they're enjoying life together. Uh, this past week, you saw that a jet was shot down over the Ukraine. It was a Malaysian jet, and there's a woman named Kaylee Mann, and she woke up to learn that her stepdaughter was in that jet. And to add to her grief, a few months before that, she lost her brother and sister-in-law in another Malaysian jet that disappeared over the Pacific Ocean. Her brother was interviewed and said, it feels like someone just kicked us in the gut and just keeps kicking and kicking and kicking. Look, in this room, there is actually a lot of pain. There's a lot of sins and things we've experienced, brokenness in this world where things are not whole and congruent and glorious. And there's a glory to come that's going to wash all of it away. There's a glory to come that's going to make us a whole. There's a glory to come that Jesus died for, rose again from the dead from, was exalted for, and is right now preparing for us. Every sign we see in the book of John points us towards that glory, gives us windows into that glory, gives us breadcrumbs that lead us to the glory to come. And so let's jump into that first sign. Now that we know what the meaning of signs are, let's look at the significance of the sign. Now, plain and simply, what did Jesus actually do? 
he turned 150 gallons of water into wine. But those 150 gallons of water and wine were in six stone jars for Jewish rites of purification, and those six stone jars were at a wedding banquet. So let's deal with them in order. First, there's 150 gallons of water turned into wine. Now imagine a close friend was throwing a party. It's a party you cared about. You're invited. You're part of the inner circle that planned it, and everyone you care about is there, and it's only like 8 o'clock at night, and you're running out of wine. And someone in the party planning committee comes up to you and says, like, good, can you bail us out? What are you going to do? Well, now that there's a Trader Joe's on 1792, you're going to drive to Trader Joe's, and you're going to buy a case of two-buck chuck, and you're going to come back a hero because you bought back a case of wine, even though each bottle only costs you $2. And, and if you did that, everyone would be so pleased, and the party can go on for another hour and a half before you quickly go home and prepare for worship. Now, <laughs> look at what Jesus does. He turns roughly 150 gallons of water into wine. So let's do a little math there. That's 567 liters. If you do the conversion to 750 milliliters in each bottle of wine, that's 757 bottles of wine. That's amazing. Now, this isn't like average wine. This is not two-buck chuck. This is good stuff. And what is, if you don't have Trader Joe's, what's a good bottle of wine cost? $40? So let's just say $40 a bottle. Jesus made an okay party better by bringing $30,000 of wine to the party. What would happen, going back to that story we made up, if you showed up to that party that was starting to die out where everyone was worried about what's going to happen to the wine, if you showed up with $30,000 worth of wine? <laughs> just, just imagine that for a second. 757 bottles just in the back table. like, guys... I went to Total Wine, I bought the store out. Here you go. <laughs> Just enjoy. It would overwhelm the party. It would be ridiculous. You would actually be made fun of the rest of your life. <laughs> Jesus is making a point. There's already a ridiculous celebration going on in heaven. <laughs> Luke chapter 15 gives us a window into that. Every time a sinner repents... The heavenly saints, the heavenly beings, Jesus himself, they're throwing a party, they're celebrating, they're rejoicing because someone who was lost has been found. Someone who is dead has come to life because a sinner has repented. What's beautiful about when you get these pictures of the heavens is it's a constant celebration, it's a constant party. Jesus knows how to throw a heavenly celebration. He knows how to rejoice in the best of things, and Jesus is inviting you in the gospel to that party. Jesus wants you to begin to experience that celebration now. The Old Testament constantly alludes to it. There's one of my passages, one of my favorite passages in Zephaniah refers to how like an average saint is dressed up in a wedding dress. And in that wedding dress, Jesus is singing over that person songs of salvation. Right now, Jesus is celebrating life with you, celebrating that you're in his family, celebrating what he is doing in your life, and celebrating, oh, the wholeness to come. And Jesus wants to experience that celebration, that party now. So think about it. 150 gallons of water and wine. But where was that 150 gallons of wine? They're in six stone jars for purification rites. Now, this is odd. This is confusing. This, for us modern readers, we're like, what is this? What does this stuff mean? 
Well, if you're familiar with the scriptures, Mark chapter 7 kind of gets at that. There's a scene where Jesus and his disciples are eating, and, and the Pharisees, they're all, man, they're really wound up, and they're like, what are you doing? You haven't properly washed your hands. And they're not talking about hygiene. I'm sure the disciples got their little Purell, and they really cleansed their hands before they broke into stuff. But let's talk about ceremonial cleansing. See, the traditions of the elders, not the scriptures, but the traditions of the elders is you have to ceremonially clean everything. If you go to Mark 7, it tells you, you got to clean your hands, your cups, your pots, and even the dining couches you're sitting on. So there's a symbolic cleaning you're doing so you can partake in the meal and it has absolutely nothing to do with hygiene. This is why you'd find six empty stone jars at that wedding banquet. Because it took about 150 gallons of water to ceremonial clean every couch they were dining on. I'm sure everyone at that wedding party ceremonially cleansed their hands. And every pot and utensil and dish and cup was cleansed as well. You better believe Jesus is making a statement. (laughs) It wasn't by accident that he used those six stone jars. He's giving us a picture. He's starting to drop breadcrumbs. He's overwhelming the traditions of men to the brim. They're actually rather inadequate to make us clean because you need the wine of his kingdom to become clean. So how does one get clean? Jesus makes it really clear. Uh, Most world religions, including the religion that I came from, you have to do something. You have to perform. You have to work your tail off. And maybe as you get morally better, God will shine his grace and love upon you. But the gospel couldn't be more different. Jesus understands that we've alienated ourselves from him, and if it's left to us to fix the gap between us, we're going to utterly fail. And so the gospel is not about what we do, but what he's done. The gospel is about his life for us, his death on our behalf for our sins, his resurrection, and all that was necessary to make us whole, to cleanse us, to purify us, was done on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection, and then he gives it up to us by his spirit. It's all done by him. You see, this wine points to a greater wine, a cup of wine that only Jesus had to drink. Going back to the book of Isaiah, it it talks about this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath, this cup of wine, this cup of sorrow that someone has to drink to make everyone whole. And it's, it's weird. You don't know what to do with it until you get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he was in the garden and he was overwhelmed and he took his disciples and said, we've got to pray, guys. And then he took his favorite three, and he said, and he took a little further, and said, you guys got to stay awake and pray for me, because uh, I'm at wit's end. And they're like, okay. And then he goes a little farther, and what does he say? Dad, can you take this cup from me? Is there any other way? What cup is he talking about? There was no cup in front of him. Yes, there was. It was the cup of wrath. Is the cup of suffering. Someone had to drink it down to the dregs to make humanity whole. And Jesus says, is there any other way but not my will, but your will be done? And the Father encouraged him and said, no, it's you. This is what we set out to do from the very beginning. And Jesus on that cross drank that cup of suffering. You see, that cup of wine, that cup of suffering, that wine and those purification jars point to the blood of Jesus. And it's only the blood of Jesus that makes us whole. So we have 150 gallons of water that turns into wine that points to a majestic celebration in heaven. 
They're in six purification jars that speak to the blood of Jesus and how he cleanses us. But these six stone jars are at a wedding banquet. You know, a wedding banquet. Why a wedding banquet? Well, what, what other picture best represents the ultimate party to come? Let's go back to Isaiah again. Chapter 25, verse 6. There's this mysterious feast that's being talked about. It's this messianic feast where God is going to gather all his family together on the mountaintop. And they're going to have this feast where they eat the richest of food and drink aged wine. I, I don't know what type of aged wine that's going to be, but I bet it's going to be fantastic. And then look at Revelation chapter 19, the other end of the scriptures, where John himself refers to this marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus is going to gather his bride and they're going to have the greatest of feasts and celebrations. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us more clarity on that, where Jesus is more than our Lord, he's more than our King, he's more than our Savior, but he's the bridegroom. And who are we? But the bride. And Jesus loves us like his bride, and he moves towards us, and he cleanses us in his life, death, and resurrection. And now he washes us with his word because he's united to us. He's pledged to us, and he's making a home for us. And he can't wait for that messianic feast, that marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, there's a celebration that awaits you if you're a follower of Jesus. The grandest of celebrations. The party that's going to make all parties vanish away. Because we're not just forgiven, we're not just righteous, we're wanted. I know for the fellows in this room, that's a really hard concept to get. But think about the last great wedding you went to. They never get old, do they? I think I've probably officiated over 30 weddings at this point in my life. Probably Ted's, I know, has done more. But when you, when you officiate a ton of weddings and you're at the good ones, they just never get old. We figured some things out. You know, when those center doors open and the bride comes out in her white dress, it's some, some modification of the same white dress every other woman's worn. And she's radiant. And she's beautiful. And no one can take their eyes off of her. The groom, uh, the, the, da- the downside of being where I am when I deficiate the wings, I can't see the groom's face because that's the one thing I want to see because he just can't but help soak it all in. And where is that groom throughout the entire wedding service? He's just, he's right next to his bride. And at the reception, he's right next to her and he can't take his eyes off her because he just wants to spend the rest of his life with her because he wants her and only she can satisfy him. Do you see what a wedding banquet signifies when Jesus is the groom and we're his bride? He can't take his eyes off of us. He just wants us. He just enjoys us because he lived for us, died for us, rose again for us, given us his spirit. We're his And he's ours. And nothing is more exciting for him now as our bridegroom than waiting for that great wedding feast where he can make things whole and right. In the scope of this beautiful sign, wine, lots of it, and purification jars at a wedding banquet, think about how poorly we often party. I'm going somewhere with this. Just talk with me on this. I think at New City, this church has endeavored to party better than any church I've been at. But think about how poorly we celebrate. We often party and celebrate to forget. And in the gospel, Jesus invites us to celebrate and party to remember. Often when 
men and women drink in our society, we drink to cut off the edge. Instead of drink to celebrate the drinks, we'll be drinking with Jesus forever and ever. <laughs> we celebrate to, to kind of cover up our lack of contentment and joy and how unsatisfied we are. And celebrate, instead, just, instead of celebrating the joy and contentment we have in the gospel and rejoicing how Jesus fills us up now and how he'll fully fill us up in the world to come. I was thinking about a lot this week. And all the things I love to celebrate, how, how they vanish. Ted, Damien, and I went away for a couple of days, and we were just thinking through some stuff in the church and planning some stuff out. And, and, uh, and it was funny. I, got, I just get way too excited about food. You could probably tell by looking at me, but I get really excited about food. And I had some ribs, and I was going on and on and on. And, and Ted and Damien, the whole time, were politely, graciously, all week, just kind of just pointing me to a greater feast to come. And how that's going to be so much more satisfying. You know, and as great as those ribs are, they, they weren't with me the next day. And they, just, and they just left me wanting and waiting. I remember when Florida State won earlier this year, the national championship. And I just remembered the glee and the joy and the exuberance of about a third of you in this room. <laughs> you know, and how you just couldn't, you just, oh, this is so awesome. How's that working for you now? You know, it's gone. A new football season has come. Can Winston do it again? What the things we celebrate on this earth, as fun as they are, leave us wanting and unsettled. And what I love about the scriptures and what I love about this sign, what I love about what Jesus is doing here is saying, you have something so worthy to celebrate. There's a party in heaven you're invited to mimic now. We get to celebrate repentance now. We get to celebrate changed lives now. We get to throw parties for the right things now. We get to taste the celebration to come We celebrate to look forward. We celebrate to remember. We celebrate to revel in the gospel. Friends, I fail at this, but I think in this world, if anyone should know how to celebrate and throw the best of parties, it should be us. So really briefly, because I've used up a lot of my time here, is as we think about the meaning of signs and the significance of this sign, let's just quickly think about the implications of this sign. I actually think Jesus teaches us how to party well in this passage. Jesus teaches us how to celebrate well in this passage. Because he's so content in his identity with his father, because he's so enraptured with his father's love for him, because he's so settled in the mission God's given him, because he's so looking forward to the celebration to come, it liberates him to celebrate well on earth. So think about it. Just look at how beautiful Jesus is in this passage. I mean, just looking at him, you could see why people wanted to celebrate and party with him. You can see why he was called a glutton and a drunkard and why the, why the Pharisees hated him because he was so much fun to be with. Real quick, look how Jesus parties or celebrates or, or relates to the servants in this passage. Yeah, you know, up to the point, like in real time in John chapter 2, the only people that knew that Jesus just made 150 gallons of the most amazing wine were his Mary, disciples, and a couple of servants. And instead of getting the glory and the limelight, look at his humility. He's just like, hey guys, just take some of that water and just take it to the wedding feast head waiter guy. There's not a technical term for this guy, but the guy who's the head of the banquet, he's a hired hand, he's the MC. He runs the wedding, he probably doesn't know anyone there. And so the, the servants take the wine to him. They, they get glory in this, you know? 
Think about how much humility he has. He treats the people who are the lowest in the social strata there with so much dignity. He parties well. Look how he treats the groom. He gives the groom all the glory. There's this, there's this amazing party going on. He just makes it better. Instead of going, hey, guys, I took care of it. $30,000 of wine, it's on me. He's in the background. He has the servants do what they do, so much so that the head of the banquet, where's the groom? I've never seen this done before. Usually people use the good stuff, and then they get to the bad stuff. But you use good stuff and brought better stuff. This is never done. The groom now looks amazing. For the next 20 years in Cana, everyone's going to talk about that wedding. Hey, remember that dude's reception? He took the wine from here to here. Every other wedding reception in Cana, they're like, oh, rats. You know how much money we got spent on wine? He makes the groom look amazing. He parties so well. Look how Jesus celebrates with his mom. Let's just be honest here. Uh, Nine out of ten of us have weird relationships with our mamas, Right? And right now, there's, we have a lot of young moms in this room, and you have great relationships with your kids. Something's going to happen. <laughs> All right? So much so that they're going to be in my office a couple years from now going, what do I do with my mom? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. This is so hard. We got a great counselor. Let me call him for you. Look how Jesus relates to his mom in this passage. She, you know, she comes up and she's like, Jesus, we got some issues. We got to take care of it. This is really important. And look how he responds to her. Woman, what does this have to do with you and me? My hour's not yet come. It does not make sense. He doesn't translate really well either. I, I, I read so many commentaries in this passage. They're all like, oh, the English language just doesn't have words for this. In the Greek, it literally says, woman, what is it with you and me? Okay. But the woman, the way it's being translated, it's not as nearly as offensive as it's coming across. Uh, just, okay, real quick application. If you're talking to your mom this week, do not call her woman. Okay, that's, I just want to make that really clear. Because that's not what really Jesus is saying. It's, what he's saying is more like ma'am, but not in a southern sense. So he's like creating some distance. What, what everyone can agree with is this is a gentle rebuke to his mother. Don't try to control me. Okay, And so what I love about Jesus is he doesn't underreact or overreact. He doesn't underreact. What do you want to do, Mom? Okay. Nor does he overreact. How dare you try to control me, woman? I'm the God of the universe and you need to bow at my feet. You know? <laughs> he doesn't do either, but he loves her. And what's fascinating in this passage is he actually ends up listening to her. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus parties so well. The way he treats the servants, the way he treats the groom, the way he treats family and his mom but ultimately, look how Jesus relates to his Father in heaven in this passage. Again, Mary says, um, hey, Jesus, can you help out? And Jesus responds, woman, what does this have to do with me and you? My hour has not yet come. Let me translate that in very modern, modern language. Jesus, are running out of wine. You've got to do something. Leave me alone. It's not my time to die yet. It's a non sequitur. His response does not make any sense to what Mary asked. My hour has not yet come. Oh, this is a great phrase because in the Gospel of John, my hour refers to the cross. Jesus is at the grandest of celebrations. He's at a wedding banquet with someone he knows well, and he's thinking about the cross. He's thinking about his death. He's on mission at that party. He's already enraptured. His face is already set upon the cross. He sees the joy set before him. As he endures the cross, on the other side is glory with his beloved. And he's already at that wedding thinking about a much greater wedding. He's already at that wedding starting to sip on the cup that is to come that he has to drink. 
He's already thinking about the blood that has to be shed for me and you. Now think about that. When we're at a celebration, we're on the clock. We're on the celebration. Our Father has us on mission. When we're at any celebration party, just like me and you, there's men and women there drinking to forget and not to remember. We're at any party, there's men and women forgetting and failing to see the celebration to come, and they need someone to nudge them towards that celebration. I'm so thankful that Jesus set that party was thinking about a party to come. And he was thinking about his hour for me and you. He was thinking about his blood, that blood that cleanses us, that blood that pardons us, that blood that brings us peace and righteousness. Jesus right now is changing us from one degree of glory to another. And his blood made all of that possible.